It's really true. Um, you know, I don't know where, I guess I know where people would rather be than church. Um, I, you know, unfortunately, I'm a Bills fan. I'm stuck to that. Um, I'm cursed to that by virtue of birth and where I was born. And um, they do this thing before every game where they say, is there any place you'd rather be? Where would you rather be than right here, right now? And the whole stadium, like 80,000 people, yells it together right here, right now. And I've heard them do that before, and I thought, <laughs> would people do that at church? You know, would, would they have that excitement for church? And um, we ought to. We ought to, especially with the Lord's table. Where would you rather be than right here, right now? Um, there isn't. I was sitting here a little while ago watching my granddaughter stumbling around, you know, with my son-in-law and, you know, towing her around and all this. And I'm thinking, man, there ain't no place I'd rather be than right here, right now. And so I'm, I'm grateful for what the Lord has done in our lives to bring us back here and uh, to serve here. And I just want to say, Jeff, I don't think I've ever said this. But I want to thank you for the work that you do here. It's been a blessing. Today, this, the songs today went right along with everything in the sermon. And I know you take special care to have that happen, and it meant a lot to me today, and so I want to thank you for that. Um, what I'm doing tonight is different. Um, we're going to take a look at an old sermon. Uh, this is not my sermon. I'm old, but I'm not this old. Um, a guy named Andrew Gray, the Scottish Covenanter, he, his years are 1633 to 1656. He was a Scottish Covenanter, uh, kind of the same era as the Puritans, except they were in Scotland dealing with slightly different issues. He was one of 21 children, if you can imagine that. Number 11, so he was pretty much right smack in the middle of 21. Um, and uh, at a young age, he came to Christ because he overheard the prayer of a beggar. He heard the prayer of a beggar, and the beggar was crying out to God, thanking God for all the blessings that he had in his life. And that prayer caused him to feel conviction that he wasn't grateful for what he had. And as a young child, that led him to Christ. In 1651, at the age of 18, he got a master's in arts in Edinburgh. And at 19, he was declared a candidate for ministry. And at the age of 20, he was ordained. That's pretty remarkable even back then for, for that to happen. Um, it's said of him, uh, one of the Scottish historians named Blakey said he had a remarkable power of probing the conscience. That's, that was his gift as a preacher. Another one named James Durham said he could make men's hair stand on end when he preached. Uh, and the theme, major theme of his, uh, of his preaching was holiness of life. Now, he died in 1656, so he died at the age of 23. He had a very short ministry, um, and they said he died of purple fever, whatever that is. He left behind a widow and two children, but if you total up his ministry, it was about 27 months. 27 months, that's not a long time for ministry, and yet in spite of that, there are three volumes of sermons that come down to us from his ministry. And uh, the first one is the works of Andrew Gray. Those sermons were compiled by someone who was taking notes 
in the congregation. And uh, just by taking the notes, uh, those were able to be uh, actually printed. They took his widow's notes and used those notes to help revise that volume. So here's his wife having a big impact in that first volume of sermons. Then there was another book that he wrote. It was more of just a book. And it was called A Door Opening to Everlasting Life. And I told you that one of his major themes was holiness. This was 220 pages on holiness and what it means to uh, be holy before God. The book that I have is a book called Loving Christ and Fleeing Temptation. This is a group of 50 sermons, about 640 pages. This book only exists because of his wife's notes. She was the one that kept these notes, 640 pages, 50 sermons. You're talking about 12 pages of notes per sermon. So what a ministry that she had. Not, I'm sure she didn't even think that, well, you know, someday they're going to use these in order to publish his sermons. But one of the things that they say, and it's true as you read it, as you read his sermons, you're like, if you're outlining it, you'll see, this doesn't feel complete, you know, well, there were notes (laughs) and he didn't live long enough to be able to go back and edit his own sermons which people like Spurgeon and these guys they all had that ability to go back and edit before it went to press he didn't have that ability at 20 dying at 23 we're just blessed that we have him at all right and so it's it's pretty remarkable um so that book was first printed a hundred years later in 1756 He died in 1656. These notes get discovered much, much later. And a hundred years later, they reprint that book. They do another edition in 1792, and they just reprinted it again in 2007. And the editors of the book say it's really difficult to to work with this because you can tell they're so unedited. However, even in those notes, you can see his love for Christ. And you can see... The, some of the fire that he had that, that he was noted for. So I want to share with you a sermon tonight called Christ's Royal Priesthood, Sufficient for Faith. This is one that he preached. Um, and his launching point, their, their sermons were really more textual than expository. In other words, he would make points jumping around text to text. He started with Hebrews 4.14. Hebrews 4.14 says, says, Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We do have this great high priest who has done this. He says, let us hold fast our confession. And in his introduction, he says, just as the high priest in the Old Testament had the names of the tribes inscribed on the breastplate of stones, Jesus, quote, has the names of believers engraved on the palms of his hands. He's a better high priest. (laughs) And so take a look at this text. Isaiah 49. I thought to my, he didn't give a reference. And I was like, where in the world is he getting this from? Well, it's Isaiah. Isaiah 49, 15 and 16. This is the relationship that we have with our high priest. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. This 
is our great high priest. He cares about us like that. So he does several things with this message, and he starts by dealing with what is included in Christ's priestly office. He's got two main points that are included in Christ's priestly office. The first, he is a spotless sacrifice for our sins. That's included in this. Of course, John one twenty, uh, John one twenty nine. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the of the world. He is a spotless sacrifice. Hebrews five seven says, "In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. He was a, he was a spotless sacrifice for sins. He was heard because of his reverence." And then he points out here under this point that the Trinity was united in this plan. This wasn't something that, you know, it was, it was a plan from eternity past amongst the Trinity. He points this out, gives some evidences of this, and he starts with the Father in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. Hebrews 10, 7 says, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, Jesus came to do the will of the Father. And there are evidences that he is pleased with it. And the language he used is that the Trinity had divine harmony and sweet consent to this plan. So he says about the Father, first of all, the first evidence, the Father loved his Son for it. He loved Jesus for his obedience. John 10, 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He was walking in obedience, willing to lay down his life. And because of it, the Father loved him. The second evidence he gives is Isaiah 53, 10. The promise is given to Christ in the covenant of redemption. Here are the promises that God gave in Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And so the father is pleased with the son uh, because it was the will of the Lord, it was the will of the father to crush his son. And he followed through with that. Don't don't lose sight of the strength of that language. (laughs) He crushed him. We talk about it when we break the bread, right? It pleased God to do that, to crush him. And the great reward for his work is seen, especially in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. The Father rewarded Jesus for the work that he did. Because Hebrews 2, 9 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He was crowned with glory and honor. That crowning with glory and honor is evidence that the Father is pleased with his work. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but his ascension and his exaltation to the right hand of the Father, the same kind of thing. It is evidence, and it's a seal, that the Father is pleased what Christ did, and it's his seal of approval. Then actually the second person, Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity, expressed during his life how much he wanted to do this. 
Uh, of course, you see the times, you know, he's struggling in the garden. It seems like a struggle in the garden anyway. He's crying out to the Father there. But listen to what he says in Luke chapter 12, verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with. He's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about his death. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He says, I'm dis- I am here for that, and I am act- it bothers me that I'm not there yet. Uh, that's where I'm going. That's where I'm going, and I'm distressed until it gets done. He's got a goal in mind. And then the Holy Spirit uh, is also approving of this plan because Isaiah 42, verse 1, says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, had a role to play in his life. He empowered that ministry. The Holy Spirit empowered the ministry of Christ. Even though he's God, still, the Holy Spirit had a role in that. A lot of times we lose sight of this, that the Trinity is at work in our salvation. And in a lot of churches, like, you won't ever hear that. I don't think when I grew up in churches, I ever heard anything about this idea that the Trinity is actually involved in, our, in my salvation. Um, I don't even know if even in Bible college I heard it, if I think about it. But we need to meditate on that. This is not just some sort of accidental thing where you know, one person of the Trinity is organizing something and the rest aren't involved with it. It's not the way that it worked. And so that is the first thing that's included in Christ's priestly office. He has a spotless sacrifice for our sins, and the Trinity was at work in that. And then the second thing, uh, he is the fulfillment of the office of priest. Hebrews 7, verse 16, it says, "...who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life." It wasn't just that he was a descendant. He was one of the Levites, right? That's not what's going on there. He was a Judah. He was a descendant of the tribe of Judah. It wasn't on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but he was a priest because he was God and indestructible. <laughs> and so um, he is the ultimate fulfillment of that. Very Melchizedek uh, pointed forward, the priesthood of Melchizedek pointed forward to that as the argument in Hebrews. So the second thing he talks about is the characteristics of our great high priest. And on this one, he didn't, either he didn't give much scriptural evidence for this, or whoever was taking notes just didn't write it down. <laughs> his wife just maybe didn't get this part. And that's something you find as you read his sermons. You're like, seems like there ought to be a little more meat there. You ever take notes, right, and you don't get everything? That's, that's, that's probably what's going on here. But the characteristics of our great high priest, two of them, the first is the, lo- he uses the word, the loftiness of his person. When you're talking about this high priest, don't underestimate how lofty he is, how elevated he is. He is the eternal second person of the Godhead. So as that great high priest, when he came, took on flesh, and offered up himself as a sacrifice, he, uh, Grace says, this was a mighty condescension. He who was clothed with light as with a robe and with the garments of immortal glory clothed himself with that clothing 
of the nature of a man. It's incredible to think about. We talked about that this morning, about the glory of God and all that. Well, that's who he was in eternity past before he took on flesh. And then he goes on to say, Christ was content to live 33 years amongst us. Why? That we might live an eternity with him. He spent those 33 years content to do it, condescending to do it, so that we one day will spend all of the rest of eternity with the one that we love and the one who loves us. So that's the first characteristic he deals with of our great high priest. And then the second, he talks about the depth of his sufferings. And this is where like the covenanters, the Puritans, understood better than we do about what his suffering really was. You know, if you look at any of the Jesus movies that have come out over the years, the emphasis when he's crucified is always on his physical pain. And of course, it was incredibly painful. I think the Passion of the Christ probably did the best job of any of them of showing what was involved, especially in the beating and some of that stuff. It's horrific. But that was not the depth of his suffering. And that's where they miss it completely. It wasn't just about the physical suffering. In fact, the far greater suffering was that he was being made, as Isaiah 53 says, an offering for our sins. The perfect, spotless Son of God taking on all of our sin. If you think about it for any one individual of us, for the sinless, spotless Son of God, any one of us, it would have been enormously painful for him. But he was carrying all the sins of all of his people for all of time. The perfect, spotless Son of God who never sinned, bearing sin, that, that load of sin. And so Gray talks about that and he points out Romans chapter 8, verse 3. He says, In his sufferings he condemned sin. Romans 8, 3 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. This was their emphasis and it's the right emphasis and I don't think you'll ever get it, honestly. You just won't ever get a movie out of Hollywood that gets this right. (laughs) They don't get it. They just know there's a lot of Christians and they'll probably go see this movie. They don't really understand the theology of it. And so uh, Gray goes on to say, Christ might have come, he might have come, to condemn sinners in the flesh, but he didn't do it. He says, here is infinite love. He came to condemn that which condemned us. He came to condemn the sin. And that's pointed out in John chapter 3, after you get past verse 16, that you know we're already condemned. He didn't have to come here to condemn us. We're already there. We've already broken the laws of God. We're already totally depraved. We needed not a condemner. We needed a Savior. And that's what we got in the person of Jesus Christ. So those are the characteristics of our great high priest. As he finishes up the message... He talks about the benefits that we receive from his priestly office, and there are six of them that he points out. 
The first benefit is, as we've already referred to, he dealt with sin. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 and verse 26, here's what he says, and you've heard me talk about this before. I talk about it probably every time I do the Lord's table. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Not the blood of bulls and goats or goats and calves, it says, but by his own blood he did this. No high priest had ever done that. They were always offering up the blood of these animal sacrifices. Jesus goes and he offers up himself. And he does it once and for all. The temple is later destroyed. The priesthood is destroyed. The entire sacrificial system is destroyed. And there's no need for another one. He has accomplished it. The second second benefit he brings out And I love the way that he said this because it made me think of apologists, the way that they talk. And he said, his resurrection answers all objections. You got an objection to Christ? (laughs) Deal with this. He rose from the dead. You know, and he's like, you know, any objection you want to bring, any academic objection that you want to bring to Christ, he's alive. Deal with it. (laughs) And uh, so he brings Romans 8, verse 34 Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Don't worry about all these people flapping their gums about why they don't believe in God or they don't believe in Christ or the gospel or whatever. Don't worry about that. He's alive. And point them to the scripture and just say that to them. He's alive you deal with that. <laughs> what are you going to do with that? Trust the scriptures when you're reasoning with people. Just give them the word of God, what the word of God says about these things. So his resurrection answers all objections. And then the third benefit, love for him because of what he's done. Love for him, you can, it's translated in the King James, constrains us. It controls us. It controls us. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. This is the benefit of his priestly office. We recognize that he did this for us. And it's just love that causes us to want to serve him. Not trying to earn our salvation. Not trying to be good enough. But because we love him. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. You go out there in this world and just look around. Who are people living for? Number one, and it's not God. They mean themselves. They're out looking out for number one. But you have received what we're, what we're talking about here in the, in the Lord's table. You have received the benefit of Christ's death 
And so that you can't ever be the same from that point forward. You live for someone who died for you. And oh, by the way, that someone is God in the flesh. And he rose from the dead. The uh, fourth one, the fourth benefit, the covenant is fulfilled in him. And the text he uses for this idea is Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The covenant is fulfilled in Christ. Because of all this, the fifth um, benefit is that your unbelief is ended. And I take that to be true because on Super Bowl Sunday, you are sitting here and not at home watching a game, right? You, your uh, unbelief has ended and you care about Christ, right? 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I'm a sinner and my unbelief has ended, and I, <laughs> he came to die for sinners, and that's me, and therefore that's, you know, that's why, that's a benefit we receive from his office. And the last one, you'll hate sin. You'll hate sin. If you understand what it is that happened at the cross, you will hate sin. First Peter chapter 4, verse 1 since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Two things about sin he points out as he wraps it up. Number one, it was a heavy burden to him. I've already referred to that a little bit. But Jesus said in Mark chapter 14, verse 34, he said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. He was sorrowful like that in the garden, not because of the physical pain. He was sorrowful because he knew that he was to be made a sin offering. And then the other thing that you know about sin is that it highly offends God. And you can know how much it offends God because the penalty for sin reveals how he looks at it. It reveals the severity with which he looks at the sin. We've already looked at Isaiah 53.10. He refers to it again. But remember, it pleased the Lord to crush him. He was willing, God is willing, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all willing, to have Jesus crushed because of sin. That should teach us something about, if nothing else, if you didn't even have the Ten Commandments, but you know that Jesus was crushed for sin, that should be enough by itself for you to realize the character of sin. And so think on that this week as you're tempted. We all will be. We all will be tempted to sin this week. Think about the penalty that was paid to secure your salvation, the crushing of his own son. It's remarkable. In conclusion, this is the last thing that he said. And this gives you an example of why they say he was a fireball that could make your hair stand on end. The last thing they said, the last sentence he says in the sermon but cursed be that person by whom Christ is not accounted precious, and let all the congregation say amen. <laughs> right? I mean, anyone who does not consider this Christ that we're talking about precious, he deserves to be cursed. And he says, let them all say amen. 
I mean, that's powerful stuff to finish the message, right? And so this Andrew Gray was quite a preacher. God's good to know about him and to get a little taste of what these covenanters preached. When they were facing, by the way, to give you some historical background, they were, they were facing oppression and opposition from the British government. Uh, the Queen, Queen Mary there, just hated these people. And they were thrown out, just like the Puritans, they were thrown out of their own churches. They had to live in caves. So a lot of them went to the north part of Scotland and lived in caves in order to escape from the persecution that they faced. Some of them were crazy open-air preachers. And uh, Alexander Peden was one of the best. Uh, he called him Peden the prophet. And Peden would come from the highlands in his cave and he had a mask he put on. And I've seen the mask. And the mask is like made of horse flesh or something. And he had a fake beard on this mask and all this stuff. And he would kind of sneak into a crowd when they're out at market or something like that. And he'd find an elevated spot like Cody does, stand on something. And he jumps up on the, on the thing and ripped his mask off. And he'd start preaching the gospel until he would see the people come. And he'd pull that mask back on and kind of slip back out in the crowd. He was kind of like Batman or something for the Covenanters. And um, <laughs> that was the way those guys rolled. They were intense. But they were willing, a lot of them signed that covenant. And you can go and see that covenant. I think David Melville went and saw the covenant with Jonathan when they were there in Scotland. And so they signed their own names to the covenant. And they, some of them signed it with their own blood. <laughs> they took blood and put it in there and said, yeah, we're signing this. So they were great men of God. We're thankful for them. All right, we're going to take a few minutes here.